Good morning. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Thank you. Um, my name is uh, Brad Julin. It's just like uh, Berlin Julin. It's a little unusual, and so if you're trying to figure it out, that's kind of how it works. Uh, my wife Carol and I have, uh, have lived uh, in this area for uh, the last uh, 14 years in the Lower Mainland for over 30 years, and uh, this is home. And uh, we feel very privileged uh, to have this opportunity to be with you for a time. Uh, I've been a pastor uh, here in the Lower Mainland for many years, and uh, the last number of years I've been uh, working as a transitional pastor or interim pastor in a variety of churches, in a variety of denominations, uh, but uh, closely connected with the Alliance Transitional Pastors Network and uh, Jerry Tycrob and Errol Rempel, and that has been a huge help to me in mentoring me uh, in those, uh, those roles. Uh, we have three adult children, uh, all married, and uh, seven grandchildren, and most of them live close by, and uh, it's a real joy uh, in our lives. Uh, we're, you know, we're still in the stage uh, with the grandchildren where they, they come to the door and if I answer, they look up, you know, and they go, they go, where's Grammy? <laughs> so uh, Carol is uh, just superb uh, with those little ones and it, it gives me a lot of joy as well. Um, we're, we're at a, uh, an interesting moment in the life of this church. Uh, a, a time of, of adjustment. Uh, you know, I, I have seen that the board has uh, brought in lots of guest speakers over the last year in uh, trying to help the congregation adjust to different speakers and things like that, uh, anticipating Brian's retirement. And, uh, but, you know, things, it's different when he's gone. And uh, he, with his retirement, we've, we've moved into a new phase and yet over the last three weeks, um, uh, we have had familiar speakers here. And, uh, and so it's, it's still almost like uh, he's away on vacation. Um, but today, you have someone new. And, um, and so there's an adjustment. I don't know, have you ever been to someone's home and uh, you, you came in the house and it was a little too warm or a little too cold. It wasn't quite comfortable for you. Have you had that experience? And um, it's not wrong. It's just different. And it takes a while to get adjusted to. And uh, I, I guess I want to say, um, you know, with, with me being here today, uh, somebody's been playing with a the thermostat. There's a bit of a change. And it's going to take some time um, to adjust, but it's not so much, well, maybe it's adjusting to me, but it, it's adjusting ourselves and our expectations. And, and so I wish you much grace from the Lord in this time. And I, I guess I just want to say, Jesus hasn't left. <laughs> He's here, and I trust that he is able even to use me as a, a blessing in your lives and in this church. Um, so, uh, since this is my first time speaking, uh, my, my hope uh, is simply that you will be encouraged and inspired uh, to be looking for what God is doing in your life and in this world. This is really more an inspirational message than an ex, uh, expositional message. 
And so um, let us begin. In the 1960s, late in the 1960s, a new art form began to take shape in the United States. It was reviled by many and understood by few. It was practiced in secrecy in order to be known to the world. It was a crime to some. It was art to others. It was called graffiti. Now, I suspect that most of us think of graffiti as vandalism, right? This is the part where you nod your heads and go, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm certainly not here trying to promote it. But I, but I want to invite you on a journey with me today. Um, and perhaps discover that as the followers of Jesus, we have more in common with graffiti artists than we have imagined. Um, graffiti had its roots in Philadelphia in the, uh, in the late 1960s, and at first it was simply a few people uh, writing their, uh, their uh, nicknames around the city. The, a, nick, the, uh, a graffiti is called a tag, all right? And so a, the nickname is, is their tag, and so they'd be tag, writing these tags, and if you spray a large number of them uh, around, it came to be called bombing the city. I, that's probably not a good uh, term in today's, but you know, back in the 60s, it wasn't so problematic. So then in the 70s, graffiti started to take off in New York City, and um, the form it took there has become known in art history school as the New York School. And the first thing that we need to understand, if we're going to understand graffiti, is that graffiti is about gaining attention and recognition. Um, in the dark world of the inner city, graffiti became a way to make a name for yourself, to be significant in a, in a countercultural way. And so early on, people used odd names with numbers um, as tags to create curiosity and to, to gain recognition with the public. Um, Artists couldn't use their real name because it was illegal, of course, but uh, one of the first kings of graffiti uh, used the tag Tacky 186, and Tacky was a family nickname, and 186 was the street he lived on. And so uh, he, was a, uh, he was a messenger, he rode the subway, and uh, he bombed the city with his tag, Tacky 186. Uh, soon, another way of gaining attention and making your presence known became the sheer number of tags uh, that you could uh, bomb around the city. And this led to a massive increase in graffiti painting. But as the volume of graffiti increased, writers needed to develop new ways to make their tags stand out from others. And so they began to develop calligraphy and designs uh, to make their tags grab people's attention. Graffiti started to shift from being mere vandalism to becoming art. And so an entire graffiti subculture developed in New York City with its own rules and its own values. And fairly quickly, the focus shifted from walls to subway trains. And in the ghetto values of the graffiti subculture, greatness was measured as much by the risk involved as by the art itself. And, uh, you know, you can see a picture of those guys hanging there between subway cars trying to, trying to paint them in the middle of the night. Um, and so by tagging subway cars, an artist's work would travel around the city. 
It toured the city for a few weeks uh, until the car was pulled off the line and cleaned, but it was much riskier because the transit of, uh, police and the proximity to moving trains. So the drive to gain people's attention continued to drive a change in form. So the next thing that started to happen is um, a change in scale. Artists found larger spray nozzles for their spray paint, and they continued to increase the size of the letters and designs until they were the full height of a subway car. And then graffiti crews, rather than individuals, worked together to the point that they could paint an entire car uh, in an evening. From, uh, and then later, they got to the place where occasionally they painted an entire train. So, from 1975 uh, to 1977, graffiti reached its peak in New York City. The transit authority couldn't afford enough security to guard the trains, and as a result, um, the graffiti teams were, were, parking, uh, were painting entire parked subway cars in an evening. So then in the late 19, or sorry, in the 1980s, graffiti uh, in New York began to decline, and the reason was the transit authority increased the security, and they began pulling cars off uh, much more quickly. And the risks involved and the brief lifespan of the art meant that um, the art began to reduce and the number of artists uh, doing it uh, slowed down. So by 1989, the transit authority declared victory over the graffiti movement. It was the beginning of the clean train era. And, uh, and as a result, most graffiti shifted back to walls or over to freight trains. You know, have you ever been at a traffic, you know, a train stop and the trains are going by and they got all the logos and tags? But a few diehard artists believe that all that type of graffiti is fake that the defining medium of the art is the subway car. And so they continue to wage their war against the transit authority, even though their works never run or only appear briefly. Well, there's some stuff behind graffiti, friends. And if we were to talk about the nature of graffiti, Graffiti has been used by gangs to mark their turf and by political activists to make a statement, but as an art form, it's characterized by three things. The first is this, it is underground art. The artist is never seen, but he is known by his work. The art is making his presence known. Secondly, it's countercultural art. It's the sign of another culture that lives by a different set of values. It goes against the flow. The dominant culture owns the billboards and the TV ads and the, the radio. It, it promotes itself and its values and frankly doesn't want to hear from those who reject its value system. But what we see as vandalism is viewed as art by the graffiti subculture. To those who own property, it's a crime. To those who cannot afford property, it's a statement that they exist and that they count, too. Thirdly, it's identity art. Graffiti is always about a name. Can I say that again? Graffiti is always about a name. The name is the art. The art all points us to the identity of the artist. The letters are sometimes hard to figure out. The name may be unknown to us, but it's pointing us to someone. 
The name is telling us something significant about the artist. Well, in Psalm 17, David records a prayer to God. And the exact circumstances in which it is written are not preserved for us. But it's clear from the passage that it was a time of danger and opposition from people seeking his destruction. And I don't know about you, but at times it's hard to understand how God works. Like his willingness to allow people free choice is astounding. Because the choices of others affect us. Evil is often allowed to flourish and to dominate our culture and our lives. Prayer for relief at times seems unanswered, and we wonder, has God hung up the phone and left town? (laughs) And so David prays for the defeat of his enemies. He prays for God to act and to bring justice, but knowing that God is not in, in as big a hurry as he is, he prays for one more thing. He prays for God to paint some graffiti around town. I invite you to read along or just listen as I read Psalm 17 from the Bible paraphrase called The Message by Eugene Peterson. Listen while I build my case, God, the most honest prayer you'll ever ever hear. Show the world I'm innocent. In your heart, you know I am. Go ahead, examine me from the inside out. Surprise me in the middle of the night. You'll find I'm just what I say I am. My my words don't run loose. I'm not trying to get my way in the world's way. I'm trying to get your way, your, your word's way. I'm staying on the trail. I'm putting one foot in front of the other, and I'm not giving up. So I call to you, God, because I'm sure of an answer. So answer. Bend your ear. Listen sharp. Paint grace graffiti on the fences. Take in your frightened children who are running from the neighborhood bullies straight to you. Keep your eye on me. Hide me under your cool wing feathers from the wicked who are out to get me, from mortal enemies closing in. Their hearts are hard as nails and their mouths blast hot air. They are after me, nipping my heels, determined to bring me down, lions ready to rip me apart. Young lions poised to pounce. Today, I'm inviting you to join me and take a look at some graffiti, some grace graffiti. I want to pause and pray for a moment. Lord, we are longing to see you in our lives and in our world. And so, Lord, we're inviting you to open our eyes to things you are doing and things that you might want to say to us here. I pray that you would strengthen and encourage the downhearted and that you would enable us to see you in new ways in our lives. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, David begins this uh, this prayer in kind of a surprising way. It's like a, a scene from a TV courtroom drama. He says, listen while I build my case, God. He is a lawyer presenting his case to the one who judges all things. Something has gone wrong in the city. 
People are getting away with murder. Justice is nowhere to be seen. And he's asking the judge to come and bring justice. He's asking God to show up and investigate the situation and put a stop to to evil. He's asking God to make his presence known. But David recognized that if you ask God to investigate evil and to bring justice, and we certainly should be asking God to do those things, the first place he's going to start is with us. He says, go ahead, God. Examine me from the inside out. Surprise me in the middle of the night. You'll find I'm just what I say I am. You know, I don't think that's a claim of perfection. I think it's a claim of authenticity. I think that he is saying that he has faced up to and acknowledged the stuff in his life that's not honoring God. That he that confession was a regular part of his prayer life. And he has turned away from the things that he knows do not honor God. He's not playing games. He's not putting on a show for people. He's the same person in the privacy of his home that he is in public. And I think it's always appropriate for us to reflect on that. Are we the same person in public that we are at home? Are we the same person at night that we are in the day? Is what people see what they're actually getting? You know what? Hypocrisy is always a temptation for those who choose to stand for something. And I think part of the reason for that is we are all tempted to talk a better game than we actually live. Would you agree with that? It's a temptation. But God does see us at night and in private and when we think no one's looking and He desires truth in our inner being. And if God is going to judge evil and deal with injustice in the world, if we want God to deal with that ex who is hurting us and your children or a boss who ruined your chance of promotion, we need to face the fact that God has an irritating tendency to start with us. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of Christ? And I think it's really, it comes down to this. How can God judge the world if he doesn't clean up his own house first? Does that make sense? So having acknowledged God's right to test his life, David now asked God to show up in the neighborhood, and the first thing he asked God to do in the neighborhood is a graffiti bombing. He asked God to paint grace graffiti on the fences. The, the NIV says, show the wonders of your great love. I like that. Show the wonders of your great love. So what is David asking God to do? Well, I think he's asking God to do some underground art. He's asking God to reveal the presence of an unseen artist. God, we can't see you, but we will know you are here by the works you perform. David is saying, God, we can wait for you to judge things as long as we know you're here and that you see and you care. 
We need to see evidence of your grace around here. We need to see your grace graffiti on the fences. (coughs) Without evidence of God's presence, it's hard to endure. And it's easy to begin to lose hope. When things are hard, the one thing we need most is hope. Secondly, David is asking God to do some countercultural art. He is asking God to reveal the presence of a different kingdom with a different value system. The values of the kingdom of God run opposite the values of this world. And God calls us as his people aliens in this world. And so we are longing for God to show up and reveal his kingdom and his values. David is asking God to leave evidence of a different world and a different way of living to encourage his people to keep living in a countercultural way. You know what? Following God in our lives is kind of like paddling upstream. Do you know what I mean? Jim would know. Paddling upstream, paddling against the tide or the current. You know, friends, if you stop paddling when the, when the current's flowing against you, then you just drift. <laughs> you go backwards. And God is calling us to live in a countercultural way, and we need hope and encouragement to keep pressing forward in our lives. To live for stuff that has little value in this culture but will be of infinite value in eternity. Carolyn Aaron spoke last week about the practice of, can I say, I'm I'm not sure I've got this right, momento more. Is that right, Carolyn? To reflect on our mortality, to live for eternity, to write our own obituary or the one we wish people would write about us when we're gone. Thirdly, David is asking God to do some identity art, to reveal the character of the artist king. Graffiti is not art for art's sake. It's always a name or a nickname, and it points you to the artist. You know, nicknames are kind of an interesting thing. Um, They're given to describe a characteristic about us that we, uh, usually that we would like to be known by. Sometimes people give us nicknames. We're not sure we want that, but... um, you know, fighter pilots always have, a, have a, a call sign or a handle. You know, you don't say over the radio, hey, Bill. You know, you say, hey, Maverick, hey, Goose, you know, right? The call sign is supposed to be a name that captures some quality of who they are, of their ability. Graffiti, friends, is a call sign, a handle, a nickname that tells us about the character of the artist. When David asked God to paint grace graffiti on the fences, he's asking God to reveal who he is in the neighborhood. He's asking God to show his power and his mercy and his love in a world that doesn't believe he really exists. And the rest of the psalm is about how he would like to see God do that. It's a prayer for God to protect his people and to judge their enemies. Now, you know... One of the interesting things is that in the Old Testament, we find an astounding example of God writing graffiti. The people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon. 
because of their sin and idol worship. It was, it was kind of like having the hell's angels take over the church. Babylon was a nation of great violence and cruelty, and they were slaves in it. God basically said, you want to worship idols? Okay, I will give you your fill of it. You will find out what it means to live for your own desires. You'll experience the degradation and the evil in men's hearts when they worship anything other than God. And after more than 65 years of captivity, they had had enough. They were praying to return to the land. They were praying for God to release them from captivity. They were praying for God to write some grace graffiti on the walls. In October of 539 B.C., the king of Babylon was a man named Belshazzar. He was the son of the great conqueror Nebuchadnezzar. And he decided to have a banquet with a thousand of his nobles. And Belshazzar called for the gold and the silver goblets that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem where they had been dedicated to Jehovah God to be brought out and used to drink a toast to their gods, the gods of Babylon. It was a symbolic act of the superiority of their gods over Jehovah. And as they are toasting, suddenly a human hand appears in the air and begins writing graffiti on the wall. <laughs> it contained the following inscription, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the historical event from which we get our phrase of doom, seeing the writing on the wall. This is it, friends. It says the king froze in fear and his knees knocked together. He called wise men and astrologers to interpret the meaning, but no one could. And so Daniel, a servant of God, was called and offered a huge reward to interpret it. He declined payment, but he gave the meaning of the graffiti to the king. Daniel said, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven by toasting your God with holy things from his temple. You did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. So here's what it means. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed in God's scales and found wanting. Parson means divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And scripture and history tell us that that very night Belshazzar was slain as the Medes and Persians slipped into the city. You know what, friends? God knows how to write graffiti. He was writing on walls long before the New York school came along. If God wants to leave his mark on a person or a community or a nation, he knows how to do it. And he has the power to do it. And he is likely to do it in the most unexpected ways. And the very words that meant judgment for Babylon meant grace for Israel. The writing on the wall in the palace of Babylon was underground art. It revealed the presence of someone unseen. It was countercultural art. It revealed the presence of a different kingdom and a different value system. And it was identity art. It revealed the holy character of the one who wrote it. 
So perhaps we should be asking ourselves the question this morning, where do we look for God's graffiti? There are many days when I'm asking God to paint some grace graffiti on my fences. I want God to show up. I want Him to reveal Himself and His presence in my life and my family, in the church and in the community. I want Him to set some things right. I, I want Him to reveal His love by fixing some things. I, I want His justice and power to be seen. I want to see His call sign in the city. I want the reality and values of His unseen kingdom to be revealed on earth. Isn't that why we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking God to show us the wonders of His great love. Have you ever been in a situation where something was really familiar to you so much that you, you don't even notice it? Like, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but, you know, you get a dent in your car, you know, crunch, and you haven't gotten it fixed yet, you know, and after a while you just kind of, it, you don't hardly even see it anymore. And then you, you give somebody a ride and they go, oh, man, what happened to your car? See, sometimes God's grace graffiti has been there and we have just forgotten about it or we're not looking. Sometimes we do need God to paint grace graffiti on the fences. Sometimes we just need Him to open our eyes to His graffiti around us. So where do we look? Well, one place we could look is creation. Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, God describes some of His graffiti. Listen to the opening words of Psalm 19. I'm going to use the message again for this uh, passage. God's glory is on tour in the skies. God craft on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every morning. Professor Knight lectures each evening. Their words aren't heard. Their voices aren't recorded. But their silence fills the earth. Unspoken truth spoken everywhere. More familiar translations say, The heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day they pour, pour forth speech. Night to night they reveal knowledge. It's talking about the stars and the sun and the moon. They are Madam Day and Professor Knight silently lecturing us on the existence of an unseen creator who is known and seen by his work, by his graffiti in the skies. Um, I was just meeting, uh, I think it's James Johnson this morning, and we were introducing ourselves, and he says, so what do you do you know, for fun? Well, I said, I do uh, astrophotography. What? I, I, I take pictures of stars. Um, so I got one here. Here we go. Go ahead. I'm ready. There it is. I know. You're not wowed. It's okay. Uh, this is M13. This is, you're going to go home and tell everybody how, how you learned a new word, a globular cluster. That's what it is. It's a globular cluster. It's just a ball of stars. It's still inside the Milky Way. Our galaxy is called the Milky Way. There's about a hundred of these balls of stars that are around the Milky Way that we can see. This one's in the constellation Hercules. And um, I got a better picture, a professional picture. And we can zoom in. And now you see what it looks like, friends. It's estimated to have a half a million stars in that ball. And there are 
like a hundred of these balls of stars around just our galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, if you lived on a planet on one of those stars, it would be daylight all the time because there's suns all around you. Um, so let's zoom out a little farther. Let's go out to uh, the next one. And this is uh, a picture of the Andromeda galaxy. So now we're outside of our galaxy. We're looking out. The Andromeda galaxy is um, uh, the brightest object uh, outside of our galaxy that you can see when you look up in the sky. Um, don't be uh, looking for something wow. It's just a faint fuzzy up there unless you have a telescope or something. Um, but we think that the Milky Way looks very similar to this. We think this is a pretty average galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy. Um, and, um, and we think it's very similar to what the Milky Way would look like if we could step back and, and look at it. And um, so, uh, got any idea how many stars there might be? I, I wouldn't. You, nobody can count it. It's just it's like a cloud. Astronomers estimate there's probably about a trillion stars just in the Andromeda galaxy alone. A trillion stars. And God created that, friends. Now, I probably need to explain to you that a telescope, they have a nickname for telescopes. Telescopes are called light buckets. And, and the reason is because they catch light. So, it, you know, if you were trying to catch rain and you had a little bucket and you hit it out there, it, it, would, it wouldn't catch very much rain because it's small. So the bigger the bucket, the more rain you catch, right? Same with a telescope. The bigger the telescope, the more light it catches. And then secondly, a second way you could catch more rain with a bucket is if you left it out longer, right? So bigger bucket, leave it out longer, you get more water. Same is true with a telescope, except the way that you, you leave it out longer is you attach a camera. And you, you know, digital camera, you turn it, open the, uh, the lens, and you let it just catch light. Well, in 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope was in operation, finally, and astronomers had this idea. They thought, you know, what if we just took the Hubble Telescope and we pointed it at a dark place in the sky. Uh-oh, I just lost. There it goes. Okay. Um, it, we pointed it at a dark place in the sky where there, we can't see anything and just leave it open for a while and see what happens. And so um, they, uh, they uh, took a picture and uh, go ahead and click there. This is part of that picture. It's called the Hubble Deep Field Image. And um, so they took this picture and uh, perhaps... It would be helpful to know that uh, I got a dime here. This picture covers the area of a dime held up 75 feet away. That's how much of the sky it covers. So you people in the back row, you have the best view. This is the size of what this picture covered in space. And they pointed it at a dark spot in the sky and said, let's just see what happens. And when they did that, what happened was no single star, except for that little spiky thing right there, just left the center, showed up. Everything else was galaxies. And they began to count, and there's approximately 1,500 galaxies in this one picture of an area of space covering a dime 75 feet away. Astronomers were astounded, friends. Nobody had ever seen anything like that.
And so about 10 years later in 2004, they decided, let's do it again. Let's pick a different spot and let's do it for longer. The first one, they, uh, they left the camera open for like five and a half days. They said, let's double that. Let's go to 11 days. And so uh, they took another picture, uh, 277 hours, 11.6 days. This one covers the area. This is a bigger picture. It covers the area of a nickel covering the sky from 75 feet away. Okay? And when they looked at the image, they realized, I'm zooming in now here a little bit so you can see that it's actually galaxies. They saw about 10,000 galaxies in this one tiny area of space, friends. And you know what? God created the heavens and the earth, friends. He spoke a word and it came into being. God's graffiti reveals his identity and the universe shouts his call sign, Almighty God. And I'll tell you, when I go out under the stars, it just makes me stop and think of who it is that created it all. There's another way that, another area that I think we look for God's graffiti, and that is incarnation. This is just a big word that means in flesh. God became a man. He came in human flesh, and he walked the earth to show us what God is like. And what his countercultural upside-down kingdom is like. It's a kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. Where the servant is the greatest of all. It's a kingdom where only those who come like children can enter. And those who think they know it all, like adults, are rejected. It's a kingdom where he who saves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. Reading through the Gospels is kind of like watching a subway train go by. And as each car goes by, one after another, each is splashed with a new graffiti mural that points us to the artist. One is sprayed with water turned to wine. Another is a painting of a stormy sea turned calm. Another is filled with the lame and the sick and the blind rejoicing over their healing. And each picture reveals the artist's name. It's Jesus. And it gives us hope. There is another area where I look to God's graffiti, and that is redemption. Golgotha is a neighborhood where we see God's grace graffiti perhaps the best. The cross is God's graffiti. It is underground, countercultural identity art. It's an underground art because though the artist is rejected by the culture, yet he is known by his work, and his work was to take the punishment for your sin and mine upon himself. His work was to write forgiven on our fences. It is countercultural art. It turns the Roman electric chair, the symbol of shame and condemnation, into a symbol of grace and forgiveness. In the values of God's kingdom, the king sacrifices himself for his people. And it is identity art because it points us to the character of the artist. It is a picture of His mercy, of His grace, and of His power over sin and Satan and even death. I think there's one other objective kind of graffiti that we can look at, and that is I suspect that there is a lot of God's graffiti walking around this church.
His work is seen in lives transformed. His name is written on fences of flesh. Some of those fences were broken. Some were shattered. All of us were filthy. But He has washed us. And He is repairing what has been broken. And He is turning us, friends, into His artwork. Countercultural billboards of the unseen kingdom of the Almighty God signed by the Creator Himself. That's what we are. Countercultural billboards of the unseen kingdom of the Almighty God signed by the Creator Himself. He is in the business of transforming each of us into His likeness. I think I just need to say, friends, that those are kind of more objective things that we can look at. But there is also the subjective experience of God's graffiti in our lives. There is His peace that passes understanding. Carolyn was talking two weeks ago about Elijah's Elijah's experience in the cave and the still small voice of the Spirit. I was going through a tough time recently. You know what, friends? Carol and I were just praying and listening and the Lord said something that um, it was just a phrase but it completely reframed it for me. It turned it all around for me. And it was, it was both correction and encouragement all at the same time. We need to be listening. I want to ask you a question as I conclude this morning. Are you in need of a little grace graffiti in your life? Do you need to see signs of God's presence in your life, in your family, your workplace, your school, your church, in this world? God's graffiti brings hope for the future and endurance for the present. It fills us with a sense of purpose and significance because even though our lives may appear to those around us to be wasted on religious nonsense, the signs of another kingdom mean that we are building treasure that will last for all eternity, and the graffiti of the king means that the writing is on the wall for this world and its values. And so I think we need to be praying to God, praying for His graffiti to be written all over us and all over this church and all over this city. Monica, I think you were asking us to pray for God's graffiti to be written on the lives of those in that small group that you're trying to start this week. Blessings, sister. So we need to see God's graffiti around us as we live out the countercultural values of his kingdom. And sometimes we need him to open our eyes anew to the works of creation and incarnation and redemption and transformation. Sometimes we need him to help us see his marks on our own lives, how he has changed us. But sometimes when the opposition is strong and the road is long, we need God to write his name anew on our lives on our church, on our families, and on this world. And so like David, we pray. I call to you, God, because I'm sure of an answer. So answer. 
Bend your ear. Listen sharp. Paint grace graffiti on our fences. Let's pray. Lord, we are longing for you. We are calling on you to come and show the wonders of your great love in our lives and in this church and in our families and in this community. Lord, I thank you for the evidence of your grace and power here. Thank you for how you are touching lives through the the, um, community kitchen. Lord, thank you how small groups and our interactions with people around us, in our neighborhood, our friends. Lord, it's, it is, we desire for you to reveal yourself. And so, Lord, we call upon you to come and paint that grace graffiti all over us for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.